Okay, Psalm 22. A Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one that Israel praises. In you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, and you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouths of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfil my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Thank you, Keith. Do keep that open uh, as we look at it together. Um, Now, as some of you may know, I am the proud owner, if owner is the right word, of a French father-in-law called Roger. 
Uh, we get on very well because we're both quite into uh, our, our military history. Uh, me, British military history, he, French. And as you may know, those two things do not go particularly well together. But I've really enjoyed learning from him more and more about France and its past. One chap I particularly enjoyed learning about is this, uh, this handsome fellow. Um, gents, this gives you something to aim for come Movember. Um, his name is Ferdinand Foch, and he was one of the, the best generals um, France produced in the First World War. You'll still find streets named after him all over France. In the early stages of the war, he was responsible for blocking the German invasion of Norman, northern France, which was heading for Paris. Um, crisis stage, chaos reign, shells flying around. And as it all happened, he sent this message to Paris. My centre is giving way. My right is retreating. Situation, excellent. I attack immediately. Seems a little foolish. Seems like he hasn't quite grasped the reality of the situation. One would have thought that the two halves of the sentence contradict one another. But not for Foch. For him, everything in that sentence was true. And he was proved right. His attack was successful. France was saved for the moment. Foch could acknowledge two sets of facts which seemed to contradict each other, but were both actually true. And our psalm this morning takes us to another great general, King David. And again, his words in this psalm seem contradictory, and yet are all completely true. Because this is a psalm, on the one hand, about extreme suffering. Verses 1 to 21 catalogue someone innocent, being rejected, scorned, and brought close to death seemingly abandoned by their God. And yet, it is also a psalm of great joy. Verses 22 to 31 are all about the excitement of dwelling with that same God in his kingdom with all his people forever and ever. It is a psalm about two things at once, real suffering and real hope. Seems mad. Seems foolish. And yet it's an apparent contradiction that lies right at the heart of the Christian faith, whether you've been living it for years or you're still trying to figure out what it all means. As we've gathered here this morning, we have sung joyfully and confidently and prayed with conviction. And yet we've also gathered here as people in pain, carrying burdens, weary and suffering. I don't know what the specifics are for you whether it's sleepless nights, chronic pain, worrying about relatives or friends or jobs. But I'm willing to bet that everyone in this room has at some point in the last day or week or month or year wanted to cry David's words in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can we have real hope in the middle of real suffering? That's what we're going to look at this morning under three headings up on the screen, if that would be a help. We're going to look at confronting the reality of suffering, living in the reality of hope, and finally trusting the suffering saviour who makes this hope a reality. 
So let's start by thinking about how David confronts his suffering. So from verse 1, it's clear. It's with cries of anguish, day and night. David's suffering is real. It hurts. He is scorned and despised and mocked and insulted, verses 6 and 7. And then as he goes on, he's, he's hunted and stalked by those he describes as dogs and lions, ready to tear him to shreds, bulls that are ready to gore him. Verse 6, he feels like a worm, fit only to be trodden on by other people. Where do you find yourself in these verses? Do you know the humiliation of being mocked and shouted at by the workplace bully or the abusive partner? Do you feel the scorn when Christianity is brought up in the lunchroom and someone says, you don't believe that rubbish, do you? Or do you know the physical fear in these verses? For yourself or for someone you love, illness and injury? Are you afraid of the frailty of your own body? Or perhaps you find yourself in the haunting words of verse 14. I am poured out like water. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. Uh, My wife and I have gone through a phase of lighting candles in the evening, putting them on the bookcases. It's, It's very relaxing, looks very nice. Perhaps why this image appeals to me in particular. Because when you look at wax, it's very solid. Uh, And if it's spilt and it's it's dried somewhere you don't want it, it's an absolute pain to try and scrape off. And yet a few moments of flame, and it's like water. Runs away, splashes everywhere, like a blink of an eye. Does that describe you? The things inside that are meant to feel solid, reliable, just melting, disintegrating, seeping out into the gutter. That, that moment when you simply can't face it anymore. Suffering is real. It was real for David. It is real for us. What do we do with it? What do we do as we, as we lie awake at night worrying? Or, or you open another email with a job rejection? Or when you get the phone call from the friend who's had the bad news from the doctor? Or the phone call yourself? Lots of ways we we could respond and often do. We might anaesthetize ourselves, find some way of putting our heads in the sands. Uh, Perhaps we open another bottle of wine, kindly provided by our French father-in-law. And we try to convince ourselves that one more glass will make everything feel better. Or we can try and pretend that it's not really happening. I've realized in myself that I'm capable of some truly creative wishful thinking. Um, you, you know how it is, you sort of, you imagine the best possible outcome for each particular thing you're facing, and then you sort of add them all up, and you end up with this wonderful fantasy world, which is much nicer to dwell in than, than reality, uh, and so you, you camp out, and you think, oh, no, everything will, will actually turn out, turn out great, and then it doesn't, and you're back to where you started, having to confront the reality of broken hopes and disappointed dreams. Maybe it's another refuge or hope that you seek. But where does David go? Well, as we've said, he cries out day and night. And and this just runs through the whole first half of the psalm. So verse 11, 
who shouts to God, Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. And then again, verse 19. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. And then finally, verse 21. Rescue me, save me, deliver me. David cries out and he expects God to answer. These are not timid requests, you know. Please, sir, if you have a moment, could you possibly see your way to maybe, you know, not letting that dog tear my throat out? No, he is hammering on heaven's door and he expects an answer. And why? Well, because this is a God whom David knows. This isn't just any God. This isn't fate or some vague, fuzzy feeling about the divine. This is my God, my God. A God with a character, a personal God. A God who has proven himself again and again to be trustworthy. David's ancestors had found this out, verses 3, 4, and 5. They'd been slaves in Egypt. They had cried out to God, and God had delivered them. And and I just note the echo. Verses 1 and 2, he talks about his cries of anguish. I cry out by day. Then verse 5, to you, they cried out and were not put to shame. Saying, you've done it before, God. Do it for me. And verses 9 and 10, David had known this in his own life. You brought me out of the womb. You made me trust you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. David knows that there's nothing else that can help him. Not faced with these threats. The stakes are simply too high. And I think that's why he rehearses his struggles in such detail. He isn't wallowing in self-pity. He's, he's saying to God, no, this is the depth of my need. This is how serious it is. I need you this much. Otherwise, I'm going to be torn apart. And it's you alone that can save me. Is this us? Is this how we respond? We confront our suffering. What might it look like in the crisis, in the moment when you have your head in your hands, what might it look like to join David in hammering on heaven's door? I think one thing to say before we go on to the next point is these are words in the pages of God's holy word. We have complete divine permission to use them. God wants us to hammer on his door, to ask for help, for rescue. So let's use them. Let's ask them in hope. This brings us on to our second heading, living in the reality of hope. Because as we move on to the second half of the psalm, there's nothing to suggest that anything has changed. The dogs are still out there. The lions and the bulls are still circling. David still scorned and despised. The dust is beckoning. And yet, verse 22 onwards, his despair has turned to confidence. Verse 22, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. Verse 25, from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. David is already in the middle of suffering, imagining, sharing 
the good news of God's deliverance uh, with others. One of the highlights uh, of my month here at Christchurch is our church prayer meeting, Prayer 150. And the highlight of that meeting is the moment where two, three, four people share ways that God has delivered them, has concretely been there for them in their lives, encouraging the rest of us assembled there to praise. That, that's what David's imagining. Even in the middle of suffering, he's imagining this is dreadful, but it's going to make a really great encouraging testimony when I come and share it with others. There is certainty here. There is conviction. That's how he can praise God now for what God will have done. And that's why he, he begins to encourage others to start praising him, God, for what hasn't even happened yet. All you that fear the Lord, praise him. All the descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him, descendants of Israel. And, and then he gets carried away with himself, because it, it's not just him that will have been delivered. Verse 26, it's the poor will eat. Verse 27, the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. Not just David, not just Israel. Those from out of all the nations will praise the God who gives hope. What would it look like to pray with this kind of hope today? I was reminded of this by, um, I was reminded as I read this of a, of a friend at Theological College uh, from Nigeria um, called Agechi. Uh, Nigerian church uh, knows suffering in quite some detail. And I remember the morning when we got the news of the Boko Haram kidnappings. And Agechi, well, you can imagine how Agechi felt. Upset, angry, frustrated, almost in tears about what had happened. But I'll never forget the way that he prayed. As we, as we gathered around, as was our habit. He prayed and prayed and prayed. And then the way he ended his prayer was like this. Father, Thank you for answering this prayer because we ask it in Jesus' name. Not thank you that you might answer this prayer. Not thank you for considering answering this prayer. Not even thank you that you will answer this prayer. No, thank you for answering this prayer. Agechi did not know how or when or where God would answer his prayer. He didn't know if the suffering would go on for another day or week or decade or until the moment Christ returns. But like David, Agechi knew God's character. He knew the Lord's work in his own life, the work of his church. He knew that God was faithful. He knew that God would answer in the way that seemed best to him. But... There's something missing from all this, and this brings us on to our third point. All of this, Agechi's prayers, this psalm, begs a very important question. How can David be sure? How can we share this certainty? Because when suffering is real, when it's right in front of us, snarling at us, what kind of hope can be real enough to trust? What if our trust is misplaced? Look again at verse 8 with me, at the, at the mockers. 
He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him if he delights in him. Can you hear the challenge? What if trust is misplaced? What if this hope is false? What if this time God fails? What if God himself is simply another bit of wishful thinking? Because after all, many times God does not answer our prayers right away. There are times when the suffering continues, day after day, year after year. And actually, as verse 29 in this psalm reminds us, everyone inevitably fails to keep ourselves alive. One day our bodies will fail. Even if we can escape mockery and scorn, even if we get lucky with our health and our security, one day we will all die. David, you and me. Is there any point crying out in the end? And nothing shows this problem better than David's own descendant, Jesus. Now, Jesus was the one in whom God truly did delight. If anyone deserved to cry out and be delivered, it was Jesus. And yet, Jesus found himself in the very hell that verses 1 to 21 describe. He found himself abandoned by his friends. They they couldn't even stay awake to keep watch. One of his friends betrayed him. Another denied him. He was dragged before the rulers of God's people. He was mocked and insulted and scorned and despised, exactly as these verses described. Beaten, spat upon. People looked and shook their heads. He was taken outside the city. Villains surrounded him, armored soldiers, thugs really, circling around him like dogs and lions. They pierced his hands and his feet, And his lungs fought for air, and all of his bones were on display. And the people came, and they stared, and they gloated. And the rulers of God's people shook their heads and said, If he trusts in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, if he really delights in him. If his hope is real, let's see what happens. In the hot sun, he was parched, his tongue cleaved to the top of his mouth, barely able to speak, gasping for air. He shouted the words he had known since childhood. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why indeed, when God had delighted in him as his only son, the only innocent and perfect king. And the people who heard waited, wondering if God would deliver him. And then after hours of agony, he died without rescue and without deliverance. Abandoned by humanity, by God, laid in the dust, utterly forsaken. Can hope really be real? How can both sets of facts be true? On the third day, After Jesus' death, his friends finally summoned up a bit of courage, cautiously approached the tomb where they'd watched him get laid. What did they find? Well, they found a stone rolled away 
they found grave clothes neatly folded. And they saw a man they had watched die and be declared dead, standing physically in front of them. And so began the cry that has echoed down the church for millennia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. This psalm makes absolutely no sense. This hope is completely groundless without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And that is why Jesus went to such lengths to assure us that it did really happen. He left us with the evidence, and after centuries of skepticism and scrutiny, it still stands. Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, David's certainty becomes our certainty. And this isn't simply about the fact that there is life after death. That is true, that is important, but it goes so much further than that. Because it asks us, why did Jesus go through all that? Why did the one in whom God delighted submit to be forsaken utterly? Well, as I've been thinking about this, I found these verses from Hebrews very helpful. It speaks of how, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God. It's from Hebrews 12. There was joy he was aiming for. And what is it? Well, in another part of Hebrews we read, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, and quoting our psalm, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. This is what Jesus set out to accomplish. The second half of this psalm. The one in whom God delighted was forsaken, so that we who ought to be forsaken might delight in God as family, as brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus. And these words make far more sense when Jesus speaks them. Because when David was writing these words, he's imagining a a gathering in Jerusalem, uh, maybe maybe covering Israel, possibly stretching out into the Middle East. When he talks about the ends of the earth turning to God, he's having to use his imagination a little bit. And yet today, the good news of Jesus Christ, of his resurrection and triumph over death, does go out into all the world. It is spread throughout every nation and tribe so that one day those from every nation and tribe and family will bow the knee to David's God. Jesus went through the first half of this psalm so that we could enjoy the second half. And that means that if you trust in Jesus, verses 22 to 31 are where you are going. Whatever you have done, Whatever you are currently suffering, this is how your story ends. This is why Jesus died. So that one day, the poor who trust in him will be satisfied. They will sit down and eat and feast together. It it was so that men and women and boys and girls from every nation under the sun can come together as one big family. It was so that in the middle of suffering, today... We can look away from our suffering and look back at an empty tomb and look forward at a great assembly singing praises to our God. It was so that we can pray 
the prayers of David in the first half of the psalm confidently. These can be your words because they were Jesus' words before you. These are the grounds on which hope is real. Jesus rose from the dead clearly and certainly and he will not abandon us when our bodies finally fail. And if we were asked him at that moment, when our eyelids do close in death, he will not be slow to deliver us. If we have said to Christ, rescue me and save me, he will take us by the hand and lift us to our feet. And he will stand in our midst as we gather together and there will be 10,000 upon 10,000 of suffering sinners who have finally been saved and Christ himself will lead us in eternal praises to his heavenly Father for our eternal deliverance. Let's pray. Father, make us long for that day. Make us see that day. When the suffering is real, may the hope be more real. May we look away from the dogs and the lions and the bulls and may we see your son standing triumphant over death, ready to welcome us into heaven. Fix our eyes and our hearts on this, we pray. And thank you for answering our prayer because we've asked it in Jesus' name. Amen.